Welcome to MediaShip Podcast, episode 243, your guide to the digital media revolution. I'm Mark Glazer. In the news this week, the good, bad, and ugly of those dominating tech giants. On the bad side, Google, Facebook, and Twitter were overrun by misinformation during the Las Vegas shooting, with alt-right sites and manipulators naming the wrong shooter. On the good side, Google announced it was ending its first click-free rule for publishers with paywalls, allowing them to set the number of articles people can see for free via Google search and news. And on the ugly side, we learn more about the Russian-linked actors who manipulated Americans in battleground states leading up to the election with targeted ads, fake accounts, and Facebook groups. Our metric of the week is on hiatus this week due to the ONA conference. And I'll go one-on-one with angel investor and entrepreneur Jason Kalkanis to talk about the death of blogs, his new book Angel, and diversity in tech, all on this week's MediaShift podcast. Is your life ruled by FOMO, fear of missing out? Check out MediaShift's digital ed online trainings to keep your skills up to date. We have trainings coming up on five tech tools to improve your reporting and how to create a community-centered newsroom. Check them out and sign up today at bit.ly slash digital ed now. That's bit.ly slash digital ed now. Now the big news in digital media this week. First up, tech platforms were manipulated by the alt-right during the Las Vegas shooting. In a cycle that's become all too familiar, amateur web sleuths and just plain bad actors spread false information in the aftermath of the horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas. And like those many times before, the tech platforms became a vehicle to spread the misinformation. One egregious example was the mistaken identification of the shooter by people in the internet forum 4chan, which was listed as a source in Google search results. If this sounds familiar, you're not wrong. A similar thing happened following the Boston bombing with Reddit sleuths misidentifying the bomber. We know now the real identity of the shooter to be Stephen Paddock, but before authorities released his name, Facebook and Google were linking to unverified articles from alt-right sites such as Gateway Pundit. And why did they name another man and spread the information quickly without verification? It turned out that the man they misidentified was apparently liberal and a Trump-hating Rachel Maddow fan. Worst of all, Fast Company reported that Facebook's shape. Worst of all, Fast Company reported that Facebook's safety check page during the shooting was linking to a false story on a site called Alt-Right News. Facebook pulled down the story and apologized in a statement, saying, "We are working to fix the issue that allowed this to happen in the first place." and deeply regret the confusion this caused. It should come as no surprise that misinformation would spread on platforms following breaking news events, not only because this has happened before, but because the platforms are also built to spread information and not to vet it. But Google, Facebook, and Twitter are becoming closer to public utilities now rather than indie upstarts. Just as we've seen with the investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. election, the tech giants can no longer fly under the radar when they make mistakes. Next up, Google changes subscription rules to help publishers. Now here's a competition publishers can get behind. 
Facebook and Google competing to help publishers drive more paid subscriptions. First, Facebook said it would help drive subscriptions through instant articles without taking a revenue cut. Now Google has stepped up with new plans to help drive subscriptions, and guess what? They're not taking a cut either. Most notably, Google will eliminate First Click Free, a policy that required publishers to provide a minimum of three free articles a day via Google Search and Google News. The new policy is called First Flexible Sampling. In the past, Google argued that the free clicks would help publishers entice readers to subscribe and publishers that didn't comply would be ranked lower in search results. The new policy will allow publishers to decide how many free articles they want to provide for readers. Google VP of News Richard Gindris wrote that the tech giant is also building a suite of products and services to help publishers expand their audiences. Finally, Google will examine how to simplify the subscription purchase process for readers. Currently, Google is working with News Corp, The New York Times, and Financial Times on developing new AI tools to help meet these goals, according to a Financial Times report. And even the tapeworm has turned. News Corp CEO Robert Thompson, who famously called Google a tapeworm in the intestines of the internet, now says things have changed with platforms. How about that? And finally, how Russians targeted social ads to influence the election. Speaking of platforms, we're finding out more details about the Russian influence campaign during the U.S. elections. Facebook handed over 3,000 ads to congressional investigators this week. According to the Washington Post, the Russian-linked accounts created fake sites and Facebook pages around topics like Black Lives Matter, immigration, and Muslims in the U.S. that looked like legitimate sites. They would then create ads linking to those false pages and target those ads on Facebook using the custom audience tool. As the Post report notes, the Russian disinformation campaign was using the same targeting that sophisticated advertisers and political campaigns use to influence people's political behavior. And later, CNN reported that the Russian link campaign even targeted specific battleground areas in Michigan and Wisconsin. According to Facebook, roughly 10 million people may have seen Russian linked ads, with 44% seen before the November 8th election. In order to address concerns over transparency, the social giant is taking a number of countermeasures, including hiring a thousand people to its global ad review team over the next year. They'll also require documentation and identification for organizations that want to buy ads related to U.S. elections. Of course, Facebook hasn't been the only platform under the microscope. Twitter revealed it had shut down 201 accounts tied to the Internet Research Agency, a Kremlin-backed troll farm. It also said Kremlin-linked RT spent $240,000 on Twitter ads in 2016. This is a story that will only get more complex the more that investigators and tech platforms look into it. Join us at MediaShift's fifth journalism school hackathon at the University of North Texas near Dallas, Fort Worth. The focus will be on sports and health, and we'll have teams of journalism students, faculty, and professionals from around the country. Learn more at bit.ly slash hackunt. That's bit.ly slash hackunt.
here are some other stories we're following. The Los Angeles Police Department apologized for telling the media that Tom Petty died before he actually died. There are fresh worries that old interactive news stories online might disappear as tech standards change. YouTube is sponsoring the World Series in hopes of luring cord cutters to its streaming TV service. And Facebook's mid-roll video ads haven't been paying off for publishers yet. MediaShift is teaming up with the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University to present another Hack the Gender Gap Women's Hackathon. The theme this year is diversifying AI. With the rise of artificial intelligence, how can we be sure it serves a diverse population? Learn more at bit.ly slash hackwvu. That's bit.ly slash hackwvu. Register by next Monday to get early bird rates. This week is Jason Kalkanis, technology entrepreneur, angel investor, author of the book Angel, and the host of the popular weekly podcast This Week in Startups. As a scout for top-tier Silicon Valley venture capital firm Sequoia Capital, later as an angel investor, Jason has invested in 150 early-stage startups, including four that have achieved billion-dollar valuations so far. Welcome to the show, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me. And as we were speaking, the number of unicorns grew to six. So we're uh, we're making some progress. <laughs> wow! Talk about a boom. So, yeah. I've gotten quite <laughs> so lucky. Luck and some skill. So many people know you from your time as an angel investor and and running launch conference and the podcast. But I definitely remember back to the days of Silicon Alley Reporter in the '90s publication you ran and Weblogs.com, which you sold to AOL. How do you think things have changed between that tech boom and, and this one? Uh, well, thanks for having me, number one, and for that trip down memory lane. Really, there were a lot of open questions in the early days of the Internet, you know, in 1993, 94, 95. And it was quite interesting, but the belief was that multimedia and convergence was going to occur with CD-ROMs. There, I remember just long, long debates about how AT&T and Sony and all these other prodigy AOL were going to own the Internet, uh, and the Internet was a toy. And, of course, we saw what an open platform that nobody could control did. It changed the world. In the late 90s, we started to see a massive investment in these companies based on the potential and overinvestment and greed got the better of people. So, and it all blew up, obviously, in the dot-com bust, and then there was 9-11, tragically. And so people got pretty down on the internet for a while. I did not anticipate the mobile revolution being as big as it was. I had been playing with Palm Pilots and some of those devices and realized, yeah, these, this could be an interesting toy to be able to text message or send somebody a photo. But I never thought in our lifetime or as quickly as it's occurred that people will be shooting 4K video and doing augmented reality and we're in a golden age of content creation and we're in a complete and utter disaster in terms of sustainable business models and content. So it's it's a really – it's a major conundrum for the media business but 
I was able to take my skills as a journalist and an editor and realize, you know, at some point, gosh, you know, the media business is just a horrible grinded out business. What if I monetized my media platform by angel investing and made the media business, you know, if it makes a couple million dollars and breaks even, great. If it loses a little money, if it makes a little profit, who cares? Uh, I'll just invest in companies 20, 30, 40 times a year. And I've done that 150 times. And, you know, that's what the book is about, what I learned through those 150 or so investments. So, I mean, is that something that's replicable? I mean, we know people like Stuart Alsop, Michael Moritz, um, you know, and some others started out in journalism and then went on to be investors and VCs. I mean, does it, is that something that more journalists should consider? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there are three really great paths to becoming an angel investor slash venture capitalist. The first is to run a company and take it public or sell it to another publicly traded or large company and have a decade or two of operational experience. That makes you very valuable to the founders. The second is to be a journalist and have a really great sense for when people are trying to snow you, spin you, and the ability, like Columbo, I consider myself like my, my school of thinking <laughs> is I'm Columbo. Uh, as a, you know, and that was always my school of, I learned that early on as a journalist. <laughs> and then people will answer my questions thinking I'm an idiot like Columbo. And eventually, you know, I'll catch the criminals and then I'll exonerate the ones who are not guilty. And I just ask really basic questions. And I let people talk and talk and talk, which is what the great journalists do. Same exact technique when you're picking companies. You're trying to figure out the truth, and it's really easy to do if you have those journalistic skills. And the third way, the most efficient way to be a great angel investor is to be a trust fund baby and have daddy and mommy give you a bunch of money to then go invest because you're automatically qualified if you can write a check. <laughs> you might not do a good job, but you can. <laughs> you have a lot of money to blow. Yeah, you'll do a great job writing the checks. Yeah, <laughs> if you can sign a check, you can be an angel investor, and so that's not lost on me. You know, I, pretty heady stuff. Like you're going to be very popular if you give people fifty thousand dollars to start pursuing their dreams. So, is there a danger with journalists or are people creating content and also investing? Because there is that relationship you have as a journalist where you're interviewing someone. And yet, if there's a business relationship involved in that, that can be pretty tricky. Yeah. You know, when I was coming up as a journalist in the 90s, I really, you know, uh, was a, an ardent supporter of church and state. And we really, if an, I told people, if you're in the advertising department and you walk over to the editors of Silicon Valley Reporter, you're fired. And now it's obviously, you know, the whole you know, BuzzFeed's whole and Vice or native advertising, native advertising, which we called payola back in the day. Now there's entire groups centered around it because it's either do that or go out of business. And if you look at BuzzFeed's, you know, stories, I, the average consumer cannot tell. And so as long as there's disclosures and everybody knows what's going on. But when I moved from New York to Silicon Valley, one of the first things that people told me was no conflict, no interest. Uh, and so in New York, you know, conflicts of interests are, you know, uh, something that people are scared of out here. They're like, how can we get an unfair competitive advantage for our companies? If you're a founder and you use Facebook Connect, you can be absolutely certain that Facebook is watching how many people connect to your service 
from what I understand, what I've heard from rumors, uh, and I, be- I believe it because uh, I've gotten it from so many people who are super plugged in and who have worked over there. Facebook's studying the data that startups use, and then they copy their products wholesale. It's uh, like borderline mm-hmm. criminal. Uh, and, uh, so, and maybe it is even actionable. If you look what they did to poor Snapchat. <laughs> they're, they're- I mean, that's that's. I guess that's the big question about startups right now, and especially in the media spaces. You know, how with Facebook and Google and these tech giants having so much power, it's very hard to break through that. I mean, they're gonna. You know, it's it's hard to say no if they're gonna come and buy you or they're just gonna copy you. Where does that leave innovation? Yeah. So we have antitrust and we have anti-competitive rules here in the United States, which have been bought and sold long ago. The FTC gave Facebook a 20-year fine, a 20-year audit, 20-year fine, and then they let them buy WhatsApp and Instagram. You know, after all of these fines, is now claiming, oh, yeah, nobody could ever. It's farcical to think that an election could be swung by political ads. And oh yeah, the Russians bought some. And oh yeah, they probably did have an impact. And oh, maybe this, maybe the data and the targeting was on an individual basis. Oh, and maybe that data was stolen. You know, like the more we realize it, like to, if you trust yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, you have not been paying attention. This is a person who screwed over his co-founders in the first year or two of the business and had massive lawsuits he had to settle. Okay, but all, but all, that, but all that aside, all that aside, where does that leave startups? You've got someone like him. You've got Google, who's not. You've got Google, who's not doing evil. You've got all these. You've got all these giants that are kind of sucking up all the air. Where does that leave startups? Yeah. So regulation's coming. It's up to the EU to police the companies in the United States. So people, what the large companies believe here in Silicon Valley, and I'm not agreeing with this. I just tell it to you straight. The large companies here in Silicon Valley, whether it's Google or Facebook, they believe that nobody can stop them. They can buy off any politician and they can pay off any fine. You know, it's it's a different time for startups and they're going to have to be more savvy. And like back in the day, I wrote this article, like why would Y Combinator invite Facebook to come to mentor and partner with startups that were three or four person startups? This is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You're literally picking up the hen house and moving it into the fox den. You're not letting the fox into the hen house. You're moving the hen house into the fox's den with a dozen foxes. Well, a lot of ideas, it's very hard to kind of trademark an idea. I mean, ideas are stolen and, and things are, are, are picked up all the time in, in tech and a lot of other industries. And, you know, the best you can do is lawsuits. Well, let's talk about um, Uber because you mentioned them and you um, put in an early investment with them. They've gone through a lot of troubles Oof, lately. Very rough year. They've got a board fight on their hands. They've had uh, harassment charges. They have a new CEO. What do you, what do you think about the prospects for that right now, and just what they've gone through in the public and kind of the thrashing they've taken in the media? Uber is the fastest growing startup in history. You know, looking back on it, having been one of the early investors and a personal friend of Travis's and a fan of his, I think the mistake they made was they had to fight to be in every city. Uh, people forget, but most cities tried to stop ride sharing, whether it was Lyft or Sidecar or Uber. So they got into a wartime mentality. You know, I think they just went heads down and they went to war getting into every city. Now, when you get into that mindset, I think sometimes you start 
uh, you start losing your magnanimity and your humility and, and you just get into like a fight over everything. Not everything's a fight. What really happened was I think it happened in such a compressed period of time. And then the reaction to it wasn't as humble and efficient as it needed to be. The good news is they put in somebody as CEO who is a humble warrior, leader of people, conciliatory, and they just settled all the board fighting today with some new governance and a new investment. And they've been growing somewhere in the range, I think, of 20% quarter over quarter, 18% quarter over quarter. I, I try not to pay too much attention to it. But also losing a lot of money, too. I mean, how, how do they – I mean, how do they – become profitable without basically raising their prices to where they probably should have been. There is absolutely no issue with them being profitable. They could be profitable today if they wanted to. When you're trying to build market share, uh, what you do is you lower the price to increase the amount of demand uh, and to beat competitors and build your market share. So that's just a strategy. If you look, they were losing well over a billion dollars a quarter and now I think they're down to half a billion um, or 600 million. And they have billions of dollars in the bank and SoftBank's about to put a couple more billion in. When you're on the inside of these companies, you have to quietly work to try to help where you can. And you can be sure I had conversations with Travis and other people at Uber when they had problems saying, hey, why are we doing it this way? And you know, some of those conversations were you know, multiple hours and long. And now we're going to get where we need to be, which is the company, I think, is going to be um, strong. And they're going to build their reputation back. But, you know, building your reputation back takes time. It might take years. So do you think there are you seeing signs of a bubble happening again? You know, I live in San Francisco and it just seems like the way this city is is changing is is pretty drastic. Um, And people don't when I bring up, you know, hey, this thing could change. It's happened. This is a boom town. Boom towns are famous for having bus. Do you think something's around the corner? Um. No, I, there there are bubbly moments, and there's froth here and there. So, in terms of the bubble, the people who are investing in these companies are the most sophisticated investors in the world. It's not the public anymore. The public is not buying shares and IPOs anymore. So the bubble was created last time by bankers taking companies public too early, and then the public buying the Globe.com, run by two idiot kids who had no experience and no business model, and that was a total scam. Or at least seeming, I'm going to put a, I think the statute of limitations is up, but I'm pretty sure that was a total scam. <laughs> I could be wrong, but my journalistic sense was that that was complete vapor. And now you look... So you don't think, you're not oh, seeing that no, no. kind of level of, of, of vapor stuff now. The opposite. But, um, but, but I guess how far – I mean how many unicorns can there be before there are unicorpses you know, around the Well, I mean the there's always going to be people who go too hard, too fast, and there's going to be failure if you're swinging for the fences. So fab.com blew out. Yeah. And so growth at all costs is not what's happening in Silicon Valley anymore. The reins have been tightened. People are expecting profitability. And so the stock market is priced high but not absurd. But the stock market's participants are no longer individual speculators. It's mutual funds and the like. And then the people investing in startups are accredited investors, typically putting in small amount of money. One to 10% of their net worth is what I tell people to do in the book. In other words, if you're a millionaire or you have a million dollars in cash or you make $200,000, $300,000 a year, if you lost 5% of your net worth, it wouldn't be a big deal. 
you'd make it back in a year or two on your gains in the stock market or bonds or your increase in your salary. So I think people should take more risk, actually, if they invest in great companies in Silicon Valley that are. But you're talking you're talking about people that are a little bit higher up. I mean, the story in The New York Times about your book, Farhad, mind you, with, you know, his headline was, should the middle class invest in risky tech startups? It seems like maybe that's the wrong question. It doesn't sound like you're, you're at least now, you're not talking about middle class people. You're talking about people that have more money. We're going to have to define the middle class in this situation because the way- <laughs> Wherever they are, yeah, whoever they yeah, are. Exactly. So, <laughs> Please step forward. We don't know who you are. Yeah, accredited investors are basically now people who make $200,000 a year. And uh, okay. so do you consider a $200,000- really. middle class? <laughs> I mean, if you live in New York, you'd say that's middle class. So for a middle yeah. ca- uh, for somebody who makes two hundred thousand in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, I don't have a problem with the angel investing. In fact, I don't have a problem with somebody who's a firefighter like my brother angel investing. If it's a small amount of money he can afford to lose, and he does it correctly, and he does it instead of say going to Vegas or betting on football. So <laughs> so it is so you, so it is gambling basically. It's well, it's just a different it, form. It's a different form, and here's the thing. If you're a poker player like I am and you've done it for 10 years and you're a net positive player in the last five years and you were a net negative player in the first five years, you've added some skill to a game that includes risk. That's angel investing. And so what I advise people to do is to bet very small dollar amounts at the beginning, $500 in investment, $1,000 in investment, $2,500 in investment. Do that for three, four, five years, one or two years, depending on how aggressive you want to be. Put 20 hours a week into it, do it full-time, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, and learn. And then so it takes time. And it takes time. It takes work. So, you can't – I mean that's the thing. People think, I'll, you know, I'll play the stock market. But it's like you know, the reason why people have jobs doing that is because they actually understand it. They do the research. They know it. You know, It's like you know, doing anything like that as a hobby, you're always going to take a risk. Precisely. And so there was a, I think, perception when people read – the New York Times story, which I thought was pretty fair, that that one headline triggered a lot of people. But putting that yeah. aside, if you read the book, it's not a get-rich-quick book. It's a do-the-work, which I say 20 times in the book, and get yeah. and potentially get rich slowly. <laughs> and It's not as exciting of a headline, though. And here's how I did it. And by the way, the likely scenario for an angel investor who invests in Silicon Valley, my belief, the likely scenario is you lose half your money or you double your money. Somewhere in that range is what will happen for most people investing in startups in Silicon Valley if those startups are ones that have their product in market already. So in the book, I try to really teach people to not make the mistakes I made. The mistake I made early on was I'd hear a pitch and I'd say, Oh, that I could totally make that business work based on my experience as an entrepreneur. And then I would give them $100,000 and the product would never launch. Then I said, wait yeah. a second. I made two mistakes here. One, I projected onto the person my ability and my work ethic, which they don't have in some cases. And two, yeah. why don't I wait until I see if this person can get the product to market with sweat equity, by convincing two of their friends to build it over the weekend, et cetera. So if you were going to invest in a podcasting company, why not wait until you find somebody who launched a podcast, got to 100 episodes, got their first sponsor, and then invest in them after they've been doing it for 18 months? 
if you invest in somebody who says, I want to create a podcast or a podcasting company, when you give me the money, well, that's ridiculous because podcasts are free to set up or essentially free. You know, you could get a couple of friends together and a couple of microphones and, and you know, scrap together a couple of nickels and do it. So that's what I try to teach people in the book is here's the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. Too cold, you got a business plan, you have some ideas. You know, the yeah. population of people with ideas is every single person who's awake. <laughs> exactly. As well as about half the people who are asleep because they're probably dreaming of ideas. <laughs> Our minds spew and spit ideas out at a rapid pace to the point at which we need to drug ourselves and go to therapy and drink alcohol to quiet our brains. Ideas mean nothing. Yeah. So what I teach people in the book is don't invest in the cold porridge and you, you're not going to get into the hot porridge when it's too hot and you have a series A happening between Benchmark and Social Capital and Kleiner Perkins and Kosla and Sequoia. Look for the companies that have launched their product, have 10 to users to 10,000 users or customers, people paying, five people, 15 people in their company. And you've seen them demonstrate there's no reason to be a hero and write the first check. Write the 15th check. Write the 50th check. Yeah. There's five moments in the this, – there's probably five or six moments you can invest in a startup before it raises a Series A. So be judicious about when you write the check. And so people were reading the book saying uh, – reading that New York Times story and, and I tried to reply to the comments and the comments were like, this is snake oil. Yeah. Who would ever suggest that you invest all your money in startups? And I'm like, wait a second. In the book, I said one to five percent, maybe 10 percent if you're doing it full time and you really want to take a lot of risk. So nobody said all of your money and – I'm not saying in one company either. I'm saying invest in 20 companies, $500, $1,000 each. If you invest $1,000, you put $20,000 to work in 20 companies, and two of them or three of them do really well, put another $10,000 to each of those. Now, $33,000 is in the top three companies and you know whatever, $17,000 is in the other companies. Now, you've actually done some portfolio management. Some people just read into it because yeah. I get – a 20% carry on money I invest, they thought that this was some kind of a scam. It's not a scam at all. Startups are a great investment vehicle if you do the work. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of women in Silicon Valley. And this has become a big topic this year, especially with people like Dave McClure at 500 Startups and investor Chris Saka. Stories have been coming out, um, especially at the New York Times. What do you think are the roots of this problem and what kind of fixes do you think there should be, if any? Let me take one. There's going to be bad actors in every single um, industry. So putting aside bad actors doing bad things, let's talk about the systematic stuff that have – The institutional made, stuff, really. Yeah, the institutional stuff. So when you start looking at that, we've really tried to work at it with our conferences. As an example, we did a female founder university where we invited just women to come for two days for free. We did it with Wilson Sincini, the top law firm, and we took the 12-week course that we do in our incubator and we put it in two days. And we had 50 women come in person for free and then we had – uh, I think the other 300 who applied watch on a, a live stream, and we're doing it again. For the LaunchScale.net conference we have, the, the Scale conference, we uh, just gave, I think, 800 tickets away to female founders. So there'll be 1,200 or 1,400 people there. 800 of the people in the audience will be women we give free tickets to. 
I'm seeing anecdotally uh, 10 times as many female founders as they did 10 years ago, like literally 10 times as many. So something's changed. Now, I'm not seeing enough of certain underrepresented minority groups. Um, we have an overrepresentation of Asian and Indian founders, and we have an underrepresentation of African American and Hispanic. So there's a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of great people doing really good work on this. I don't think our industry is as bad as you know, you know, maybe some of the bad actors make it out to be. And you know, if I look back on the '90s and you know my time in Silicon Alley, like it was a free-for-all party, yeah. craziness. The journalists were dating the CEOs. The CEOs were dating the investors. I mean, it was like, I guess the seventies or eighties were on wall, maybe the eighties were on wall street or the seventies were on Hollywood. It was crazy. Um, and I think our industry was never as bad as some of those other industries, but it's gotten cleaned up and, you know, I'm good friends with Chris Saka and I think he's been kind of railroaded a bit. Um, I don't know all the details of all the cases, but I know he's worked tirelessly to really try to make the industry more just. And I know Dave McClure for a long time, and I always thought he was a bit sloppy um, and, you know, uh, you know, drinking too much. So I think he probably had a substance problem, like just a lot of alcohol all the time. And I and I told him, like, you know, you, you kind of you're in charge of a big entity. And so I, I, I take it kind of seriously myself and. I, I think about it a lot. Like, are we really making good decisions about who we invest in? Do we have enough diversity? I mean, we have a very diverse team here at our company. We have nine people. I think five of them are female. So we, we've tipped over, and that's happened a couple of times. We've tipped over into having more women than men in the company. Um, and we're trying to make sure that our portfolio reflects that too. And, you know, people get a little triggered by the term pipeline problem. I don't know that we have a pipe, pipeline problem as much as, you know, um, an effort problem. I just don't know if people are really making the If people are actually making the effort, it takes effort. I mean, it's like for me to have guests on my podcast or book, you know, events like you're talking about, it's like it takes extra effort to find people outside of your typical people you know. So uh, it's like, you know. You know Kapoor, it's not easy. You know, I had a heart to heart with Freda Kapoor, who's Mitch Kapoor's partner and husband, uh -huh. uh, and Ellen Powell works for her now, um, or with her now. And um, you know, she's been a tireless supporter. She said, "You know, Jason, you're kind of you're in a position where you have influence doing the conferences, your podcast. Do you want the world to change and be more fair and just and diverse?" And I'm like, "Of course." And she's like, "Well, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Well, I, you know, I don't want to like." just pick people based on their gender or their race. And she's like, yeah, I think you got to rethink that. And I did. And, you know, now we really think it through and you, you do have this issue of, you know, you got to get creative and you, you, it's, you know, blaming the conference producers, I think also is a little bit like, you know, unfair, but it is the conference producers, responsibility, you know, to do the best they can. So I, I try not to be too judgmental. If I see a, a panel that happens to be all male, I don't look at that one panel and say, oh my God, this person is a misogynistic pig or whatever. I say, okay, well, what about the other seven panels? Or was there balance on those panels? Because let, let's look at the entirety of the person's career. And I think that's what you have to look at is the entirety of a person's career. If they've made mistakes, if they've you know, haven't had a perfect track record in terms of diversity on each panel. Yeah. Are they getting better? 
they trending in the right direction and I'm hopeful that our industry is getting much, much better. One of your startups is Inside.com, which comes from like a real heritage of being a, a media startup. And now you're, you know, this is kind of a series of targeted email newsletters. And I mean, it to me, it fits right into the 90s, really email newsletters and um, kind of similar to what you did with weblogs in a way. Do you do you see parallels there? And what how, how has that gone? It's gone great. We um, we have hundreds of thousands of subscribers to 26 newsletters, everything from artificial intelligence to drones. We're, we've tried one inside.com slash San Francisco, a local one. And I have a theory, uh, which is if I could put 95 cents of every dollar into the editorial product and five cents into the CMS and everything else, what would that business look like? And then can I get people to pay for it? So I'm happy to uh, report that you know we have – hundreds of people, you know, and in some cases, thousands of people paying for newsletters. We have advertising and it'll be a small business at 26 newsletters with, you know, 25 to 50,000 subscribers on each. But when I get it to 250 newsletters, which we will in two years, it'll be a juggernaut. And we just launched something called uh, Essential Alerts. So if you go to inside.com slash alerts, we said, hey, let us send you an SMS message, you know, using Twilio, this really cool service. Yeah. And we got, I think, one or two percent of our lists converted over. So now I have fifteen hundred people on the inside venture capital list who I can send an SMS message to saying Whole Foods got bought by Amazon. And then in, on inside Amazon, we have nine hundred, you know, phone numbers. So where you put those two together and you dedupe them, maybe I've got 2,200 people or 2,000 people. And on my personal list, I have 1,000 people. So I just emailed my 1,000 people and said, does anybody want to come to Blade Runner with me on Thursday night? And I bought out the IMAX theater and filled up 200 seats. Um, so the, the, the really interesting thing is email has an open rate of 30 to 60%. And then SMS has an open rate of 100%. People just, you don't not open an SMS. In fact, you if you get an SMS and it's not to your liking, you hit, you type the word stop and we get every reply. So we kick you off the list immediately, take it right off. So I think I'll be able to, and it's really a reaction to being abused by Google when they did their Panda search update mm -hmm. and having them change the rules. And then YouTube changed the rules and then Facebook changed the rules on us as a content creator. And I said, you know what? I'm an idiot. They fooled me once. They fooled me twice. They fooled me a third time. <laughs> When you am I ever be independent? Learn? Yeah, I have to be independent. Yeah. And I said, I am going to prove a point here. I have this. I have a you know a domain worth ten million dollars inside.com. I am going to use it to build a direct relationship based on high quality content and put ninety cents of every dollar, ninety five cents of every dollar into the content, and then put advertising and paid subscriptions with it. And you know we're within spitting distance of break even, and. I think, you know, if it was part of, say, Vox or Time Warner or, or Time Inc. or Oath or <laughs> LinkedIn, yeah. you know, I, I've been looking at some of these people who have, you know, 100 million email messages. Can you imagine if Inside.com was part of LinkedIn and or Verizon slash Oath? They, those people have 50 or 100 million um 50 or 100 million email, uh, emails or like, hundreds of We'd be spammed emails. to death is what you're saying. Well, no. I'd find <laughs> out what you're most interested in. If you're most interested in the Knicks or you're most interested in cooking or you're most interested in 
you know, electric cars, we could then start communicating directly with you without intermediaries like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, people who change the rules on you. And so my hope is uh, later in the fourth quarter, I'm just going to meet with the top 10 media companies and say, listen, is anybody interested in partnering with us? Because if I can find somebody with 10 million emails that they're not communicating with, this business would go supernova. It could become one of the most powerful media businesses ever created because I built a platform, a a content management system like we did for Weblogs Inc. that really powers it. And when we sold Weblogs Inc. to AOL, Jim Bankoff, who now runs Vox, explicitly told us that he wanted to buy Blogsmith too. And they wound up buying Blogsmith, our blog platform that Brian Alvey, my partner, made. And the reason they bought that was because they put 100 blogs on it. They put TMZ on it because they wanted to do this gossip blog. So the person with the best platform uh, often wins. And so we have this incredible email SMS platform now where I could create a list for whatever the next trend is. If you know, if ICOs are a big trend, I could start an IC- inside ICOs and an inside and an ICOs SMS list and immediately have 10,000 people on it. And how much are those 10,000 people worth if we directly email them? You know, the CPMs on email are 50 to $250. I don't even know what the the CPM of an SMS message would be. I would think it's a dollar per person. So I would think it's $1,000. Right. You have to be careful with that. Well, I, I would, I'm going to put my money on Oath just because I think the AOL buying weblogs and Oath and uh, Inside, I think that might be the way to go. Okay. <laughs> Repeat, repeating right. history. I'll talk to Tim Armstrong. <laughs> I don't know. Tim, I think Tim Armstrong knows who I am. They still have Engadget and Autoblog making $100 million a year. So yeah. that's, the de- that's the definition of a great uh, acquisition. We sold it for $30 million 12 years ago and whatever, over 10 years ago. And now they're uh, probably making $100 million off of the top two brands. And they shut everything else down, unfortunately. But Yeah, that's what happens. That's, the thing, that's what happens when you sell your babies. Yep. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and chatting right, with me right. today. Yeah. I really appreciate it, and it's uh, if you ever if anybody out there finds a great company that's in my Goldilocks zone, it's Jason at Calacanis dot com. Uh, my first name at my last name. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for joining us for the MediaShip podcast. A big shout out to our special guest, Jason Calacanis, our producer Jefferson Yen, and associate editor Bianca Fortes. Check out the latest news and features at Mediashift.org and follow us at MediashiftPod on Twitter. Our past episodes are on SoundCloud, and if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. We'll catch you next week.